Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Sleep, never retreat. Welcome to the Road to the Trials podcast, where we take an insider's look into the training and racing of some of America's best runners as they prepare for the Olympic Olympic track trials, I should say. I'm so used to saying Olympic marathon trials, even though it was a year ago. Uh, we'll talk about that time gap here in a second. I'm so excited to talk with today, Lindsey Hine and Mario Freoli as an introduction to this season two of this podcast. If you just heard that intro and you heard all of season one, you may have noticed that I dropped a word. It used to be road to the Olympic trials. It is no longer that uh, to the surprise of nobody. I don't have the copyright for the word Olympics, so I will not be using that anymore in the introduction nor in the title, but it's all the same. We are following some of the the best runners around as they prepare physically, mentally, and emotionally for what they hope to be uh, one of the, the best the best track meets of their lives, basically, and exactly what goes into that, which is why I'm so excited today to talk with Mario and Lindsay in preparation, not only for this season's episodes, but more generally getting ready for the track trials as just people who love running, people who follow running, and in their cases, people who uh, cover the sport as well. So, Lindsay, I have to ask you, I just made the mistake one second ago in our little rolling intro. It was a year ago where we had the Olympic marathon trials, and in some ways, it feels like it hasn't been a year. In other ways, it's felt like a decade. What's it like for you just thinking back on the fact that, like, We've had this wild gap between the marathon trials and what will become the track trials in five months. I mean, I, it's crazy. I, and I just really hope everything happens. I think it will. I know. I think that all of us have been talking about for a year now, now that it's coming up on a year from the marathon track trial or the marathon um, Olympic trials, like, did that happen? We were all in Atlanta. And then a week later, the world like just shut down. And so then when everything was canceled in the summer, obviously it was a big bummer. So it's exciting that it's actually kind of coming up on us. And it's been really fun to watch other track meets happen recently. I know there was one on just, was it yesterday or the day before? So yeah, I'm excited to see what these athletes can do. I'm, I'm excited to see what some of the athletes who ran in the marathon trials will do on the track for the 10K as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Mario, when you think about uh, this time gap and and everything that we've gone through this past year, what's it like for you now to get ramped to get ramped up for what is basically like part two of something that we thought was going to be much more truncated in terms of its uh, its ramp up? Well, the the time warp is real. I'm actually having a hard time believing that the Olympic trials are going to happen. Like I do believe they're going to happen, but it still hasn't clicked in my head that it's an actual event that is scheduled for this year and for me personally as i think for both of you the last running event that i attended in person was the olympic marathon trials and it feels like forever ago at this point um so thinking that this is an olympic year again i guess uh since last year was supposed to be an olympic year i haven't been able to wrap my head around that and i'm watching the track meets i'm seeing people pop times and it's starting to get me excited but i still have a hard time believing that this is an olympic year if that makes sense Absolutely. And it's funny because I was reading your newsletter this morning. You put out uh, the Shakeout newsletter and it's like it was like chock full of track news. And it was like 2000 words on track news. It was it was really like this huge deep dive. And I know exactly what you mean, that cognitive dissonance of like, 
I know this is happening, but it doesn't feel like it's going to happen. And that was like, for me, I think it was like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, when there was some sort of news out of Japan, which was like, hey, th these Olympics are, are happening, period. And I think, I don't know, for me, it was always like, just from a money perspective, this was never not going to happen, especially when you see all these other sports that have figured something out. Um, it was just so hard to believe that this wouldn't happen. Like they built all these stadiums, made these billion dollar deals and like they weren't going to make it happen. But like in the, in the meantime, the NBA has had two seasons, mm -hmm. you know? No. Um, and then finally I was like, all right, I really have to get moving on to season two here. Cause like <laughs> I wasn't sure. Like, what's the point of having the road to the trials or what road to the trials if there aren't going to be any trials? And luckily five of the six people who, uh, have signed on this year have already signed on last year. Uh, and then we, we filled the gap with, with the last one. So. Let me just say, we're not going to go through these folks right now, but if you're listening, I'm sure you're curious. If you don't already know, we are going to be following six athletes, three men and three women. On the women's side, we have Kira D'Amato, we have Dana Giordano, and we have Olivia Baker. On the men's side, we have Frank Laura, we have Tyler Day, and we have Abe Alvarado uh, getting a, a nice, nice uh, panoply of options when it comes to the different events that we're going to be covering throughout this time. Um, and when you think about, again, that kind of cognitive dissonance, Mario, did you ever have a strong feeling that the Olympics or the trials, I guess they're, they're one and the same at this point, um, that they wouldn't happen? Or were you always kind of like skeptical or holding out hope? Before I answer that, just to follow up on the last thing you said, I think for me, what has really thrown me off is because after the marathon trials last year, everything was essentially canceled. Um, and I am such a, just a creature of habit anyway, especially as it pertains to running and being a fan of the sport. I mean, this being an Olympic year, you're kind of used to the, the order of things, right? So you, you come out of the marathon trials, which the last few times has been early on in the year. And then you move on to some spring marathons end of indoor season, some early season meets where people are chasing their qualifying times. And then there's some of the bigger events and then leading up to the trials, like having that all wiped out last year and then everything through the fall. And even to this point, like we're starting to see some meets come back, but you know, other things have been canceled as well. Like, I think that's why I'm having a hard time just like wrapping my head around the fact that this is an Olympic year and the trials are i mean what four months away at this point um and and yeah i just wanted to to get that in there before i answered your question but to answer your question um i at risk of painting myself pessimistic did not believe that the olympics were going to happen last year once the pandemic had been designated a, a global pandemic and you could see how quickly it was spreading and how fast things were shutting down. I just didn't have the confidence that the world as a whole would be able to get itself together um, in time to pull the games off safely in the summer. I think there were just too many unknowns and there were a lot of moving parts and it became pretty clear to me at least early on that it would be incredibly risky to try and move forward with the Olympics as planned, given that everything had been halted almost immediately beginning in, in March and, and stayed that way for a few months, which is a very critical time, not just in track and field, but in all the Olympic sports in terms of qualifying uh, for, for trials or posting marks for the games or selecting teams for the 
the team sport. So, I mean, just the timing of, of that initial pause really threw everything for a loop and led me to believe that the Olympics probably weren't likely to happen as planned in 2020. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Lindsay, when you think about how it's gone now in terms of, you know, the last couple months and, you know, things with the vaccine coming along and, you know, different you know, other sports, like all of a sudden the NFL has had a full season. The NBA finished off like a, you know, a real, a strange 2020 season. And now is having, besides not having fans, having a fairly typical 2021 season. When did you start to feel confident that this would potentially happen versus like, were you kind of pessimistic and thinking maybe this isn't going to happen and I'll have to figure out what else to talk to my, my podcast guests about since it looks like their Olympics might not be working out. Yeah, I think I've been up and down all year. You know, I think initially last summer when everything was canceled, I was like, okay, well, I mean, a year from now is really far away, right? Though I didn't expect the vaccine to get here as soon as it did. So that's amazing. But I, I feel pretty confident right now. Did you guys see the article that was floating around and then ended up being a hoax that everything was canceled in Tokyo? Did you guys see that? No, I did see that. Yeah, I blame Twitter. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm off Twitter then. That's why I probably missed it. <laughs> it was probably three weeks ago. Would you? Did you see it, Matt? I did, and I think that's when it. Then that that's kind of like what spurred me on to like get moving on season two because then there was like an immediate like rebuttal. Yeah, like, like no, 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 that's not true. That's not that's not the case. And like, I always thought it was going to happen once these other leagues were happening. Like, I didn't, I just didn't think that they were going to flush billions of dollars on the toilet. I just didn't think it was going to happen. And then once that rumor hit, it was almost like a good thing that that was like a, that fake article came out because then it really kind of forced the hand of you know the kind of the powers that be to really come out and come out like with a statement of some sort saying, yeah, this is this is going to happen. Like. Everyone chill out. I mean, I just, I feel for the athletes if it doesn't happen. I really do. I, I've talked to several younger athletes who like didn't know the pandemic was going to happen. And then they gave up their fifth year to go pro. And so they really lucked out because they didn't miss that like last track season of their college career, you know? So those athletes, I'm like, okay, you're okay. You're a brand new pro. It'll be okay. But the athletes that have been around for a long time, I feel really bad that they've had to put it off for a year. I, I just think everybody's circumstance is so different, though. This isn't track, but you look at Alphine. She uh, squeezed in a baby there, you know, with the pandemic happening. So I think everybody's life is so different where they are in their training, where they are in their career. But it would just be really sad if they didn't get to go compete on the stage. And also, I keep saying, do I say the 2021 Olympics? I feel like I still need to say the 2020 Olympics because when it goes down in history, you know, it's always every four years. So it sounds so weird to say 2021. I feel like you've got to say 2021 just because that's when it's happening. It's like, let's yeah. not try. I mean, let's not try and slap a label on it. I mean, yeah, it doesn't fit the consistent every four year pattern but there's reasons why that was that was the case and there's going to be an odd like now assuming everything goes to plan the next three years like three years between 2021 and 2024 but i think yeah i mean that's it's part of the story of why the olympics was was pushed that way but i totally see see your point and i think organizers are actually still 
trying to call it the 2020 games, even though it's 2021, maybe because it's, they've done all the branding and they've got all this like merchandise. I have no idea, but I think we can call it 2021. The the logo is unbelievable. Mario. Have you seen the 2020 logo that they made with like the rings and the zeros and the 20, like it's perfect. Like it's (laughs) the perfect logo. And like, how often can you say that about a logo or brand normally? Like who cares? Right. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, they finally nailed it. It's like, ah, just kidding. Come up with something else. Yeah, I mean, I mean, changing your branding is is hard, especially when you've got to do it on a dime like that. And I'm sure that's, I mean, I'm sure that's a lot of it is, um, you know, is having to to change all of these things that are associated with the 2020 games. But I mean, I think when we talk about it, we're going to talk about it in terms of happening in 2021. Uh, and I think that's just going to be normal for a lot of people. Um, to follow up on what Lindsay just said. Another another point worth raising there, especially for professionals, is a lot of their contracts work on four year cycles and they tend to be tied to the Olympic Games. That's why we see a lot of I mean, year in and year out, we see people changing sponsors. But more often than not, it's it's every four years, especially for the top athletes that you see them either resign with a brand um, or move on to another brand or get stuck in, you know, no man, no woman's land and, and not have a deal. And I think that was a big concern for a lot of folks with the games being postponed or canceled is that they wouldn't have a chance to try and make the team, which if you make the team, I mean, that kind of seals the deal for you, at least for another four years, if not longer. Um, but even if you don't make the team, but you have an incredible season, you come close, you have a, a great story to tell. I mean, that makes you more valuable to sponsors as well. So a lot of those opportunities kind of went by the wayside. And I think, you know, to, to Lindsay's point, that's why I felt bad for a lot of the athletes as well, because for better or worse in professional track and field, like the Olympics is the thing. There are plenty of other exciting events and things worth getting hyped up for. But when it comes to signing contracts, I mean, there are no greater, you know, bonuses incentives etc um other than those tied to like the olympics and the olympic trials and how you place in those events uh and so on and so forth yeah that's such a, that's such a great point you know and we're seeing such a uh, wide array of athletes moving around right now and kind of doing some 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 of the athletes kind of doing the colleen quigley were kind of like gracefully leaving one team until like you know, and then, then talking you know, maybe a couple weeks later about exactly what her plans will be. But it is interesting, right? There's some athletes who are able to, I mean, obviously, Kira D'Amato was like, will there ever be a better example of taking advantage of the gap year oh, and having it work for your favor, right? And then there's other athletes, like, unfortunately, like Tiana Bartoletta, who, like, you know, published a blog post basically, like, on January 1st, being like, I, <laughs> Vicky was, Nike basically handicapped me by saying I didn't reach my uh, performance goals because I didn't do well in the Olympics. Like, obviously, there were no Olympics. Like, what, what what's that all about? And we all saw all these, like, these really odd track meets, which was, like, one meet split into nine meets yep. over the summer, where, like, literally everyone was just in the same place, but they would just call it a different meet so that the athletes who were running could say they ran in, like, four meets over the summer. And it was just such an odd experience all the way around and was kind of like a business lesson. We're not going to go into like the full details of this, obviously, but like a business lesson of like athlete and brand partnership and kind of like the do's and don'ts within that situation. And not to say that like brands that didn't manage it well, like we'll have some sort of like lasting scarlet letter on them. But I feel like it was a great opportunity for athletes and brands to really, um, 
come together because it wasn't as if like people stopped running as if like people stopped consuming these brands during that time. It just changed how athletes could market those brands. And it was just such an interesting perspective on like how business can be done during that time. Yeah. I was shocked The Nike athletes that I talked to who would say, Oh yeah, I'm getting all these reductions in my contract because I haven't done enough meets and things like that. And then I would talk to other athletes. Um, Allie Ostrander is one that I'm thinking of. She runs for Brooks who would say, Oh no, my sponsor has been totally okay with it. Like it's such a crazy year. They're not going to hold me to running. I think that the Nike athletes told me they had to do at least 10 meets, which I just think is so crazy given what kind of circumstance we were provided with, especially if you aren't training with a group because the groups were putting on these really great meets, but meets are not free. Meets are not cheap to put on. Um, I talked to Emma Coburn about it after they did their mile meet here in Indianapolis. And it's like, they put these races on or they partner with a company like here, they partnered with somebody um, locally, but it's not easy or cheap or free. And if you are not with a group, it's not that simple. So I was a little bit disheartened with, with that. Like it kind of just made me like sad for them, like that they would be getting penalties for not competing in 10 races. That's a lot of races. Not to go off on too much of a, tangent but yeah, this is no this is i think this is this is a good thing to discuss because it's very pertinent to how a lot of these athletes make their living and how the economics of the sport work but track and field probably more so than any other sport is incredibly secretive in terms of what these athletes contracts look like how much they're getting compensated what bonus structures look like what the performance minimums are etc cetera, etc cetera. and and i think that you know, this is a, this shows like, this is why it hurts the athletes. Um, you know, because every brand operates a little bit differently and, you know, the, the Nike athletes in this case are under a lot more pressure to perform and, and get races in than some athletes who are sponsored by say Brooks or, or Saucony or whatever it happens to be who aren't, you know, quite as stringent about, you know, about this sort of stuff. So I think more transparency would be, you know, would be a, a great thing. And and to Lindsay's point, I mean, a lot of these groups, like they can put on little meets for their own groups, which is a lot of them are training together anyway. So there's a safety factor in there. And, you know, do you let outside athletes into your bubble? It does become a lot harder for those individual athletes to just find opportunities to compete. I mean, it's, it's becoming a little easier now because things are, are starting to open up a little bit more but over the summer it was incredibly difficult that's why we saw the bowerman intra squad meets the team boss mile um you know naz elite i think partnered with uh i think it was lee troops group in boulder and they did a track meet um so you know we saw some of some of those things but it was incredibly difficult just to to find opportunities and for some of those athletes who were tied to to minimums. I mean, just think about, think about that pressure where you're like, there's nothing I can do. Like, unless I create my own race, there's nothing I can do. And as Lindsay said, races are not cheap to, to host. Right. And to say that, like, it's like, it's private or secret information is like, it is to a point, right? Like it is to the public, but like, there's not like an enormous amount of agents in this space, right? Like the agents know exactly what people are being paid. And what these clauses are, and they can kind of see a lot of this. And, and there are certainly beyond, people beyond that. And I'm not saying a negative word about those agents. I'm just saying, like, it's not as if everybody's in the dark, right? There are certain people who are aware of this. It kind of reminds me of like in college basketball, like, like division one basketball players, the last level, like they're all getting paid. They're getting paid 
tens of thousands of dollars, some even hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it's all getting, it's all under the table. And if you're like not in the know about it, then, then you really have no idea. So you're either like completely in the know on some level, or like you really don't know. And it kind of reminds me of this situation. And it really, by, by having it, um, again, because it's all sponsorship dollars as opposed to like, you know, people's earnings in like a more public setting, it does create this power imbalance that we've seen um, even in, even at its most mundane, it's hurtful. And then it can get like way past that. And there's plenty of other situations that we're not going to talk about right now that, that have, um, that, you know, people like Lindsay Cross have shed a lot of light on over the past two years. So with all of that being said, and with all of this build up, um, leading into spring and late winter of 2021, let's just take a, a, another step back in terms of when you think Mario of, the Summer Olympics, and specifically track and field, historically, what events have you gravitated towards? And kind of a two-part question. Have you gravitated towards events, or are you more focused on, like, specific athletes going into games and just following their progress? I love it all, and I've loved it all since I was a little kid. I mean, the first time I ever got excited about track and field was watching Michael Johnson at the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. And then he went on to have this one-on-one battle with Donovan Bailey. I had no interest in distance running at the time, but I, that got me to start watching track and field. And then I would just watch it all. I mean, I would watch everything from the hundred on up to the marathon, the hurdles, field events. Like I just, I love it all. And that's, if I'm being honest, kind of atypical for me because throughout the rest of the year, I'm mostly paying attention to distance events. And I have some idea what's going on in the sprints and, and in the multi multi events and on the field and stuff. But at the Olympics, I mean, I will watch all of it. And and that goes back to the Olympic trials. I'll watch all of it. Uh, and I want to see, like, I want to see it all unfold. I love the drama. I love just the the competitive element of it because it's top three, make the team and everyone else goes home. Um, so so come, you know, come this summer, once things really start ramping up, I'll be paying pretty close attention to everything from the hundred meters on up. Yeah, I love it all too. I definitely gravitate towards the distance, you know, especially in my podcast, I focused on marathoners for so long. Um, and a couple years ago, I started having more track and field athletes on and I've really enjoyed getting to know some of them. I know you mentioned Tiana Bartoletto recently and this episode, and she is probably one of my all-time favorite guests I've ever had on the shop, my podcast. So being able to talk to some of the field athletes and the, and the sprinters, the 800-meter runners, like that has made me a bigger fan of those shorter distance events and field events. But I mean, nothing will get me more excited than seeing Shelby Houlihan run the 5K um, at the trials. So, or the 15, whatever she does. But when I first read your question, I thought the Olympics in general, and I, the other sport I always love watching is gymnastics. Um, so yeah, I, I'm excited for it all. And I feel really grateful that I've had the opportunity to talk to so many of these athletes because that just makes the race that much more exciting. But yeah, the 5k, the 15, those will be the ones that I'm really excited about. Yeah, Mario, I'm like you. I definitely gravitated more when I was younger towards the speed stuff, in part because like that was all, those were also the events that I ran. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think the the Olympics, the the sports that really grab me, have that kind of like short burst type feel to them, right? It's like the downhill skiers, like they're on the mountain for like a minute, right? It's like the same thing with the track events, the same thing like 
Um, Lindsay, you mentioned the gymnastics, right? Like they're not doing those things for very long. You know, it's like this quick burst of energy. Like you get like so built up, you're so excited. Then you like relax. You know what I mean? In terms of uh, not the actual activity that they're doing, like me watching the activity. And it really is exciting to get like that, that drama. And then you, you relax or what's going on next. And you kind of re kind of regroup. And then you, again, we'll, we'll, we'll dive back into some really highly pressurized moment. And then the Michael Johnson stuff, that was like a phenomenon. Right. That was unbelievable. Him, you know, they got the gold shoes. He's winning multiple events and breaking world um, records. Yeah. Breaking yeah. Records. And then that was in, that was in Atlanta. Right. I mean, that was 96. So like you have that element as well, which is like, you know, they're showing it during prime time, which is always nice and, and things like that. So that was, that was obviously something. And for me, it was like, I feel like track, especially Olympic track was one of like the first sports I was like super aware of, like going back to LA, you know? So I was born in 81. I'm not going to pretend like I watched the LA Olympics, like with like, just, you know, with a strong gaze, I was three years old at the time. But at the same time, like I'm very, I was very aware of what, what Carl Lewis was doing. Again, most like when I was old enough to really understand it, maybe it was like 86 or something, like coming to terms with what exactly had happened. And then like the Ben Johnson ruling and all of that. Like, I remember like, kind of um absorbing that like maybe not real time but like not that far off and that's always like when i think about like my like olympic moments that was like the first thing for me is it's it's carl lewis and ben johnson and like way up here i'm gonna have my hands up in the air for this audio podcast <laughs> that you can't see and like everything else comes after that um i'll tell you what though one of my guilty pleasures now besides like watching sh uh, shoe reviews on youtube yeah. is like going back and watching like all of these olympic events after the fact you know and watching all these athletes who like i've gotten to know over time and then looking back like oh how did they race against each other and even if it wasn't olympic year i'd be doing that but now i'm like even more into it just kind of getting into the spirit of things See, I love watching the distance because I love watching the progression of the race and when the camera zooms in, seeing like whose face looks more like they're struggling, who's going to make a move. And just like the endurance of those events excites me, whereas the shorter events, I'm kind of like, oh, it's there and done, you know? What I love about the Olympics, especially track and field, I mean, track and field is in my very biased opinion, what the Olympics are all about. Um, it was, you know, it's the world's oldest and, and greatest sport, but just the pure athleticism of these athletes, men and women from hundred meters on up on the track, on the field. It's just incredible to watch the best in the world do what they do, uh, especially when they are peaking to be at their best. Like there's just a beauty to it that, I've always appreciated and I think I've gained more of an appreciation for over time. It really is like poetry in motion in a lot of ways, whether it's the camera zooming in on the 10,000 meters and you're just admiring the strides on, on a lot of these athletes or just the pure power of a sprinter coming out of the blocks and uh, hammering down the straightaway at ungodly speeds. Yeah, for sure. And Lindsay, I, I hear you. Like that's what, that's when I look back now, like I don't watch any of the sprint events in retrospect. You know, I always go to the longer events and watching the the, the 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 grueling nature of it and the tactics of it and all of that. And especially knowing like who these athletes are, um, you know, much better than I did back then, like in real time, you know, because so many athletes have had such a long career that you can be like, oh, look who's in this 2012 race. Like, I know, I know it's everyone in here. 
Like this is wild. And then to you know, get to see that experience again, maybe it's you know someone at the beginning of their career versus someone at the end of their career, and you know you're watching maybe Holly Gebrselasi running against Kenisa Bekele, and you get that kind of you know confluence of events where one's at the tail end and one's coming up. So, all right, so let's talk about. This year, the 2020 slash 2021 Olympics. <laughs> um, Lindsay, are there are certain race or races this year that really have you excited. Well, yeah, the 10K, because I want to see all those. I'm excited for the men, too, but I'm real excited for the ladies. It's just what it, it is, what it is. OK, I cannot wait to see what Kira, Kira does, what Sarah Hall does. So many women that ran in the Olympic trials for the marathon. I want to see what they do in that 10K. I want to see, you know, I recently talked to Ryan Hall and was he was sharing with me kind of how they're transitioning Sarah's training to faster track stuff. And so I'm just really excited to see um, what all this marathon training over the years will turn out for a 10K at the Olympic trials. I'm excited for all of the all of the events, but I, I'd say if I had to put my my most excited my race I'm most excited about it's the 10K. I cannot wait to see what Kira D'Amato does. How about you, Mario? So the women's 10K is very intriguing for all the reasons that Lindsay just described. I think there is an incredible mix of as you talked about, Matt, like kind of older, more established athletes, like someone like a Molly Huddle, for example, who I still think is like one of the the best racers we've ever seen in this country. She wants to make another Olympic team. She's going to be hard to kind of knock off of that, you know, that pedestal. Um, and she's she's made a few of them at this point. But you've got someone like Akira D'Amato who just has so much momentum right now and is really just beginning to explore what she's capable of at these events at this point of her life. But then you've got someone like a Kellen Taylor who has come so close <laughs> to making so many teams at this point and is just such a tough racer that, you know, she's going to bring her a game Sarah Hall, who's never made an Olympic team. Uh, and you know, it's, it's only going to get harder for her <laughs> from here on out. Uh, she's got a good shot, you know, of, of getting on there. Um, so that like that women's 10 K and I think, um, Along with that, the women's five, because a lot of those athletes will kind of focus on both to some degree. And then maybe at the trials, they'll go all in on one. And if things don't pan out, they may drop to the other. I mean, we've seen that happen before. I mean, someone like a Kim Conley, who made the Olympic team in 2012 in the five and then had some issues in 2016, then ended up making it in the 10, I believe, is, is where she ended up. Um, I mean, that sort of thing could happen. So there's a lot of storylines there that, that make it exciting. And, and this is just a high time for women's American distance running and, and the five and 10,000 is, is where it's at. And then even going down from that, I mean, if you talk about 1500 5k athletes, uh, Lindsay mentioned Shelby Houlihan, you got Carissa Schweitzer, uh, who's in there as well. Um, you know, other athletes who can go back and forth between those two events. I mean, everything from, the 800 to the 10,000, they're always hard teams to make. I think they're especially hard teams to make uh, here in 2021. The women's 800 intrigues me quite a bit. Um, and it's going to depend on, I think, who who is in the event. I mean, you've got Aji Wilson, uh, who just opened up her season last weekend. And I mean, had a solid like two flat 201 debut. Um, Olivia Baker, who you're going to have in this series here, I think she is still 
figuring out the 800. And if she does this year, I mean, she's just got so much speed. Um, and if it's a tactical race, as they tend to be at trials, I would not want to be uh, side by side with her coming off the final curve. I mean, you've got someone like Brenda Martinez, who made the team in the 1500 in 2016 after um kind of some bad luck in the eight. And I know she still loves the eight and would like nothing more to make a team. Um, you've got, I think Mu, uh, who is just tearing up the track indoors and, you know, could, could really be a difference maker, I think in, in that event. So, I mean, just the women, not take anything away from the guys, uh, but I think just women's distance running, middle distance running in general is really exciting right now. And everything from the 800, on up is just going to be is going to be deep and exciting well i'm not going to try to do what you just did that was very impressive um <laughs> i was going to throw kayla edwards in there too yes yes i mean I, I forgot a bunch of names for all the people that i just mentioned i mean there's probably six to 12 that just aren't top of mind right now that you know should be included in in that conversation and that just speaks to to the depth um of of american women's middle and long distance running right now I was thinking that too, Mario, because I was thinking there there are probably so many dark horses out there that just are up and coming that we don't know about. I mean, I remember in 2016, the 10K team, wasn't it Molly Huddle, Marielle Hall, and Emily Enfeld? I didn't know who Marielle was at the time. And now she's definitely one in the mix for that 10K team too, again. So there's just so many people and it's so easy to they're going to get to the start line and we're going to see that camera scan and then we're going to be like oh my gosh i forgot about you know x y and z i mean just all yeah there's just there's so many so many women in in particular who legitimately have a shot and as you mentioned earlier it's this nice mix of kind of young up-and-coming athletes and established veterans who you know this could very well be you know their their last trials and and all of them are very very motivated to try and make the team yeah and i love the 1500 meter in these races where there aren't any rabbits because it becomes so unpredictable i mean if someone wants to watch a crazy race watch the last 1500 meter race at the olympics i mean it was insane the men actually went out in the first two laps and were running slower than the people who the first 200 meters or first 400 meters of the marathon Right. Like that's how fast they were running. It was a literal crawl compared to what they were used to. And then, you know, because there's no rabbit, then it just becomes so tactical. And, you know, Center of ends up winning. It's this amazing race. And it's one of those things where I love those situations because the not randomness, because obviously a lot of fitness goes into it, a lot of strategy, but it, it does have that sense to the outside observer that it is fairly random compared to say like a 10 K where it's like, the most fit people will usually win that race on that day. I was thinking back to the women's 800 in 2016. I was so invested in it because I I just launched my podcast and I had just interviewed Molly Ludlow and she ended up getting fourth for the second trials oh. in, in a row by like, you know, point whatever, oh, whatever. And I was so invested in that race. And it's really, it was, it all came down to so many tactics it you know it really i mean i don't know if this is the right thing to say but like i don't know that it was the fastest people that made that team it was like so tactical somebody fell somebody got tripped and man that was like so emotional for the viewers and i can't imagine being the athletes my heart was with molly ludlow so much 
I mean, that's what's great about the trials and the games. It's all about place and a lot less about pace. I mean, pace is important because you've got to hit the minimum standards or you could be in the top three and theoretically not make the team, which is always weird. Um, but the races themselves, assuming everyone's got the qualifying marks that they need, I mean, that's what's exciting is just watching the chess match and seeing how these races play out from the 800 on up to the 10K. And I mean, you know, the 1500 um, tends to be more tactical, I think, than a lot of other events, just given you know, how long it is, but we could certainly see instances of that happen in the five and 10. And it comes down to, you know, uh, you know, a dozen guys still in it with, with two laps to go. And you could see people crack the top three that, you know, if it were a fast race from the beginning might not have. So, I mean, that's the stuff that excites me. I love racing. Um, I love competition. I love the chess match. And that's, I think the, to me, like the, the best part of championship style meets like the trials and like the Olympic games. Yeah. So we talked about the, the women's 10 K Kira D'Amato, who's going to be on the show. Uh, will play a central role in that. Or at least we would assume, I mean, there's literally a dozen people who you could say that about because they're all so closely, so closely grouped, not because it's like there's parody. It's just they're the, the, the level of elite runners at that distance right now on the women's side is, is wild. Like, like Mario, you like, you squeaked in like Emily Sisson's name while we were talking, like we didn't even bring her up the first time. Right. And like, she has just as good of a chance as anybody Yeah, as not only qualifying, but like, but winning the race. Yeah. I mean, you've got someone like her, Rachel Schneider is someone who made her 10 K debut just a few months ago. I mean, she could, I mean, she's one of those women who, she could make the team in the 1500, the 5k or the 10, depending on what she wants to focus on. I mean, she ran a 31 10 10k debut. I mean, that's incredible. So, I mean, it's just, again, the, the more we talk, like the more names we could, we could bring up here and you're like, yeah, she has a shot. Yep. She has a shot. Yep. She has a shot. Um, and that's, I mean, I feel like, you know, especially on the women's side, we're, we're just in a place that we haven't been in a long time here in the U S you guys have me excited to book some of these guests. It sounds it's like just, there's so many people. Yeah, I know, right? This was like one of the questions I had when I was going through this. I was like, do I just focus on the 10K <laughs> the series? Because there would be so, even if I did that, there'd be so many uh, people to choose from, uh, really. So on the men's side, we're going to be following two people, uh, Tyler Day and Frank Lara, who I think are kind of, you know, I didn't try to have people in the same the same races. This is how it worked out. And I feel like they're going to be grouped up in that same group of like, they're definitely going to be contenders. They have both put up um, strong times in the past. Frank, you know, much more uh, you know, recently, he's a 15K uh, world uh, national champion uh, from last year. He ran very well. He's so excitable and he's really, he really is amped up uh, for the trials. Tyler Day coming out of NAU, uh, now running with Nazalite. And again, just like Frank, maybe isn't in the list of like the top three contenders going in, but definitely is like, in, I feel like in that next level down of like, could, would no one would be surprised necessarily if they continue to build and have a great race, which is kind of a fun thing to follow. Yeah. It's hard to say where the line is in that event, because you could also make an argument that they're, you know, they're not favorites to make the team, but you know, they're, they're right up there with everyone else. Um, I mean, Frank, and Tyler are both young guys. Frank has definitely made some big breakthroughs over the past year. As you mentioned, 15K national champion. Uh, he ran 
back in December, it was like 27.44 outdoors. I think he just missed the Olympic standard um, in the 10,000. I mean, he'll definitely get it. Uh, it's just a matter of, of time and, and opportunity. Uh, same with Tyler Day. I mean, he hasn't even gone as fast as Frank, but he's faster at you know, at the 5K and still hasn't really knocked one out of the park in the 10 yet. And just, you know, everyone thinks of Nazalit as a, a marathon group. I mean, Alephine made the Olympic team, you know, Scott Fobble has torn up Boston. It's like, they've got some sneaky, not, not even sneaky good. Like they've got some good track guys uh, who could legitimately make the team. I mean, you've got Tyler Day, you've got Ryan Hill who just joined the team uh, previously of Bowerman. I don't know what Scott Fobble's going to do if he'll try and make the team on, you know, in the 10,000 or if he'll just I mean, he was fourth last time, right? Yeah. He was fourth in the 10K in 2016. Yeah, it just seems like there hasn't there hasn't been a lot of talk about Scott Fobble on the track and it's like he's a damn good 10K runner. So, I mean, they've got an incredible 10K group down there in, in northern Arizona and, you know, I think when you have that much talent and that level of, or, or those kind of guys who, who they want nothing more than for one of them to, to make the team. There's, there's a very good shot that one of them could. Um, yeah. I, I just, I'm rambling here and, and kind of going off, but I mean, those, I think those two guys, like they're, they're young and they're exciting. And I think that event here in the, in the U S for men, the 10,000 meters is pretty wide open. Yeah, I'm excited to see who all in AZ Elite will send to the 10K. I mean, will they send all, that whole group? Will Scott Smith? Will Sid Vaughn? Will Will Rory? Will all those guys go run the 10K? You think? The short answer is no. Oh, um, well, Rory <laughs> won't. He's Canadian. But yeah, go ahead. Rory, yeah. The short the short answer the short answer is no. And I don't even think someone like Scott Smith um, yeah. is going to drop. You know, is is going to drop down. That's he's he's much more of a, a long distance road racer and, and would probably have a lot of opportunity um, should road races open up late summer and in fall rather than trying to make the Olympic team. But, but a good chunk of them. Well, I mean, at least, you know, at least three between Tyler, Ryan Hill and, and Scott Fobble. And I mean, I think that's, that's all you really need. Um, especially when you've got all three guys who are, you know, in the same ballpark in terms of, in terms of ability. Yeah, absolutely. And just dropping down, just going with the people who who else we have on the roster for season two. On the women's side, we have Dana Giordano, who's going to be focusing in on the 1500 meters and Olivia Baker, who will be going the four and the eight. So part of that is going to be not only is what is she doing better in in the lead up and getting the qualifying times and things like that. But for Olivia also is like, what is the schedule of the track meet? Because with the four and the eight, that can get tricky because you have with the four, the eight, and the 1500. Obviously, you're not going to have many athletes who run all three, but 800 meter runners are also usually inclined to potentially running the 1500 meter. The 400 meter runners sometimes are inclined to run 800. And you have that kind of what's going to be the confluence of events that would potentially allow for someone to do both. So I haven't seen the schedule announced yet. Um, but even on my podcast with Olivia that we recorded last week, she was like, I don't know if I have a chance to do the four and the eight. It might just from a scheduling perspective might be an impossibility. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of rounds, especially the shorter, the shorter the event, the more rounds there typically are. I mean, that's why we only see usually like a 10 K final 5,000. They'll usually have a prelim and a final 1500. I think it's like quarter semi and final. And then you go down to the eight, the fields are bigger. They have more rounds. So you take, you take something like the four and the eight. I mean, that would just run most athletes into the ground and and it's it's not unprecedented but it's rare 
to see someone who really thinks they have a shot of making the team focusing on both of those events. They'll choose one or the other more often than not. Um, I, I personally hope Olivia leans toward the 800. I still think she's got a lot of room for growth in that event, but she's so dang fast. I mean, she is just so fast. I think she's run 51 or 52 for 400 meters. Uh, there aren't a lot of other women who have that kind of pure speed. And if she's been able to work on her, her strength and ability to hold her speed for a lot longer, I think there are very few women who could, yeah, I, mean, I shouldn't say very few women. I mean, we've got some incredible 800 meter runners here, but I mean, I, I again, I wouldn't want to be next to her coming off the final turn because she's just, she's just so darn speedy. And the other thing too, is that, and this isn't obviously something that you can prepare for. It's much more like, or what's going to happen on race day is the idea of the whole four by four situation right because you have and this has always been but again i didn't mention this earlier but like that's always been one of my favorites is the relays and then with olivia she has the potential for all right i could be on the four by four team you know so how does that play into the calculus of of um of uh race selection as well i love the relays that's that's and with the 800 that's one of the reasons i love that race so much because it's so fun to see the the people who are you know, 400, 800 or 800, 1500 runners out there and kind of watch how they go about the race. Right. I was thinking Brenda Martinez, she was in that 800 and then made the 1500 team in 2016. But yeah, the relays, that's so fun. I totally forgot about that. I mean, clearly you're going to want to make the team as an, the Olympic team as an individual. I'm sure that that means so much, but to be able to run both, that would be so cool. So maybe we root for Olivia to do the 800 and then get to also run on the four by eight or the four by four. And then the, you know, the distance medley relay as well. It's just, there's just so many options uh, for, for, for her, you know, with her versatility. Um, and then also with like, she doesn't have like this extremely dominant event where it's like, all right, this is the obvious move. So we'll see how that goes with Dana. So she's a 1500 meter runner. There's no question about what, about that. With that said, she had, you know, she was at the New Balance Grand Prix this weekend. I'm going to be talking to her on Thursday, and she had a race that didn't go her way, right? Mm-hmm. The field was stacked, absolutely stacked. What an event that was. Um, and she had in this, I'm not, I'm not saying this about her. These were her words. She had a, you know, a very disappointing day. She ended up running 428. That wasn't anywhere near, uh, what she, you know, planned on that day. And it'll be interesting because I feel like so many of us as dedicated amateur runners have experienced that on race day. And it'll be interesting to see her, you know, in that conversation, you know, what, what does that feel like for someone who this is your livelihood? This is an Olympic year. Does that, you know, what, what does that do from a mental and physical perspective? Or do you just bounce back immediately in the whole um, rebounding effect of that? You know, when you think of the 1500 meter, uh, it's just hard to envision like basically anybody beating Shelby Houlihan, except for <laughs> Shelby Houlihan. Um, but we'll see. I mean, she's been so dominant in past years. Yeah. Do you think Shelby's going to do the 15 or the 5k? It's a good question. I think, I mean, she could potentially medal in, in both. Um, really I don't, I don't know that she will try to do both because that gets very challenging at the Olympic level, but it's certainly not unprecedented. Um, and the schedule usually, as far as doubles go, usually allows for an athlete to effectively pull off a 1500 five. So, I mean, she could very well do both. I mean, the way that Jerry trains that team, I mean, they're a strength-based 
program. So, I mean, she'll have, she'll have what she needs to go through multiple rounds. And she is so good that, I mean, she could kind of win. <laughs> she could kind of win either of those. I shouldn't say either of those, but she could almost win any way that she wants. Um, she could win a slow tactical race or she could win a fast one from, you know, from the gun. But I mean, in the five, her teammate, Carisha Schweitzer was right there with her last summer when they both ran in the 1420s. There are no other American women who are quite there just yet. Um, so it seems like they're, they're quite a bit further ahead in, in that event, but coming down to the 15 as well. I mean, to make the team this year, I mean, it could be a tactical race, but from a fitness standpoint, I think you're going to have to be a, a sub four minute, 1500 meter runner. Um, and Shelby is obviously, you know, she's obviously that. Um, and, and when you, you're that much better than everyone else, like it just, it gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of how you could potentially, you know, how you could potentially make a team or win a race. Yeah, 100%. All right. And then diving back to the men's side, we already talked about Tyler Day and Frank Lar, who are both going to be in the 10K on the men's side. We, last guy we got is Abe Alvarado, who will be running to 800 meters. Abe ran at BYU recently, a lot of BYU pride. Um, you know, we think people think BYU, they think of, you know, they've just been so dominant and so well on the distant side. Um, you know, even Jared Ward, who's who's graduated a long time ago from BYU, you know, still still carries that flag and helps out with that team. And and, you know, they've kind of really held that mantle. Abe coming in at um in the middle distance now running for the Atlanta Track Club. I'm excited to see what he does, because this is going to be interesting. Because I love I love following 800 meter runners because it really is that sweet spot between anaerobic and aerobic performance. Right. You need to be super fast, but you also have to be super strong. And I don't know about you guys. I hated running the 800. That was the worst. It was the worst event. Even when I was younger and was like, I wasn't a big fan of longer distances. I still would have chosen any distance, even the longer ones over the 800 meters back in the day. You could certainly make an argument that it's the most difficult event in track and field. I personally think it's either the 800 or the 3000, which is not an Olympic event. But um, both are very, very challenging. Abe is fast. I mean, he's got a good set of wheels. He's run 146 for 800. Um, we have a, a very, very strong men's contingent of 800-meter runners here in the U.S. Donovan Brazier, I don't want to say he's a lock to make the team, but he is just in another league um, in here in the U.S. That's not to take anything away from Abe or, or anyone else, but it's going to be one of those you know, one of those situations where, you know, unless you're a, unless you're a solidly sub 145 guy, it's going to be really hard to think you have a shot of making the team in that, in that event. Um, but I think for a guy like Abe, who's run 146, he's got some wheels. If he gets in the right races, he's capable of that. Um, and I think once he pops a time like that, it's just going to give him the confidence that he's, he's that much closer and that much more in the mix when, when it comes down to it, especially if it's a tactical race. And then also Bryce Hopple, like who's right there with Donovan um, yeah. and, you know, coming, coming from Kansas and just, you know, he, and he is, you really have to think that those two guys are absolutely the favorites in the Andrew meters. That is not, you know, that's not a controversial statement. Lord knows. Um, which also means that like, you know, you have, you know, this, this core group of guys who are probably, who are probably viewing as like, Hey, 
it's all of us for kind of one spot thing. If you just assume that those guys, Bryce and Donovan, are going to be able to race on race day and are going to be able to put out the performance that we'd all expect them to. And they've been so consistent over the past few years. There's no reason to assume, barring injury, that they wouldn't be able to do that. And it kind of leaves it up to like, okay, well, who's going to be the last, potentially the last person? And I know that's way, it's really oversimplifying it. And it's way too early to make those kind of broad proclamations. But at the same time, it does kind of feel that way, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, those two are head and shoulders above everyone else right now. And we saw it this past weekend indoors. I mean, Donovan broke his own American record. And then Bryce Hopple broke uh, David Torrance's American record in the thousand meters. And no one else is is close to the times that they're putting up right now. Granted, it's early February. We got or mid February, I should say. We've got a long ways to go until the end of June. But assuming they they stay healthy and to your point, like just continue to race as consistently as they have in recent seasons, it's hard to bet against either one of them. You guys notice my radio silence. I'm like, I don't know much about the men's 800, so I'm going to let you two take that. Take the lead on those. <laughs> got a guy like Clayton Murphy as well, um, who we haven't heard much from in the last few months. But I mean, you know, he, you know, he's incredibly talented, uh, and you know, and his run. I think he's run what 143 or so. Made some U.S. teams. Um, has medals to you know to his name. I mean, it's a, it's it's not it's an event that doesn't get a lot of attention because we don't see these guys typically you know racing on the roads or at longer distances so they're not as widely known outside of of track circles but we have a very good core of men's 800 meter runners here in the u.s yeah and when you think about how that race again this is very early here but think about how that race is going to play out if donovan and bryce are at their peak then I think it lends itself to someone who may be running like maybe not to this extreme, but like the Nick Simmons style of coming from behind, right? If you're right on Bryce and Donovan's heels and you want to be there, you're, you're really trying to get that top three, that top three finish. And maybe again, with the Andrew meters, like is this that fine tipping point of just stepping on the gas a little too much. And you've seen people just crumble down the stretch of those, of that, of that event and time and time again. And you've seen like someone like Nick, who has made, made it basically a cottage industry of coming from behind people coming in the last 150 meters, last 60 meters and being able to jump up two, three, four, even five places in a short period of time would be really interesting to see how people view that race in terms of how they want to position themselves, uh, because ultimately how how ready people are for those last 50 meters um is really going to shape how this works out. Because again, if people go with Bryson Donovan and they step on the gas right from the front, I'm thinking of David Rhodesia um, at the last Olympics, who just went right to the front and it set a world record and no one really challenged him. And you, if they basically take that kind of approach, it really sets up the rest of the field for how close do they want to stay to that group. And Donovan and Bryce both like to race that way. Um, this past weekend was an example of that. They both went out hard and just tried to hold on, and they got American records for their efforts. And if they do that in the 800, I mean, they're 
aren't many other guys outside of Clayton Murphy who could potentially go with them in, in that event. You mentioned Nick Simmons. He was a master tactician in the 800s, which is a very strategic race, even though it is quite short. But don't forget, Nick Simmons was a 142, 143, 800 meter guy. So he had the speed. Uh, and in that event, it's a big difference between 142, 143, and then 145, 146. Um, so you, you can be at the back um, with 200 meters to go if you're a 142 runner, knowing that the guys ahead of you just just aren't as fast and you can close them down as they start to tie up um and they're the, the guys who who are there right now are the donovans the bryces the clayton murphys and i they know they're so good right now that if they get out front and and they have any kind of a gap with you know 200 meters to go there's not many folks behind them who can run them down Right, yeah, it reminds me of Emily Sisson when she had uh, the 5K on the track during her senior year at PC, and she just went right to the front and just stepped on the gas. And she knew if she ran her race, no one would be able to compete with her, and that's exactly what she did. There was like there was just no messing around. There was no tactics. It was if I run as fast as I know I can run here, this race is over. And that's exactly what she did, and that was the end of it. And everyone else was running for second place, and I can see that exact sort of thing happening. So. Lindsay, Mario, thank you so much for jumping on this introduction to season two of Road to the Trials podcast. I can tell just by this episode that we're both, there were all of us, we're all just so hyped for, <laughs> for this season. And to talk to so many of these athletes, we're all going to have the pleasure of doing that on our podcast. Lindsay, with her, I'll have another podcast. Mario, with the Morning Shakeout podcast. Again, thank you so much for coming on and best of luck to you as you chronicle all of these athletes as well over the next few months. Thanks for having us, Matt. Thanks for having us. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti from InPost Media. Also, thank you to Metapi for the music and his song, Evolution. Real version.